so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. I'm your brother from another mother. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Not literally, everybody. Um, I, I don't think anybody. I, I, don't, I don't think anybody thought that. It would have been better if you said same father. You know, God the Father. Oh, oh did what a Jesus, Jesus joke. joke in there. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the studio today are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello, everyone. Uh, Just letting you know, I am in the studio sitting across from Brent, of course, who's going to say hi in a minute, but also Josh, who is highly caffeinated. So (laughs) I hope he uh, can contain himself for this podcast episode. Shout out to our uh, colleague, uh, Conrad Close, who in his Twitter bio says something like uh, fully vaccinated and highly caffeinated, which I just absolutely (laughs) love. Well, also with us is, uh, you know, in a particularly low energy form of himself, Mr. Brent Leatherwood. How's it going, y'all? Man. (laughs) You're high energy. He's low energy. Let's see what's going to happen today. Let's see what's going to happen today. So look, it's a, um, I'd love to tell you it's a beautiful day to do a podcast. I'll go ahead and give you the inside scoop. We're recording a little early in the week. So if there is some major news story that happens and we missed it, we're sorry. But, you know, schedules dictated that this had to happen on Wednesday. So Lindsay's going to tell you what the ERLC has been talking about so far this week. Yeah, well, I will also go ahead and tell you that it's actually not a aesthetically beautiful day to record a podcast. It is rainy outside, and therefore, while I love doing this podcast, I wish I was taking a nap. But instead, I'm going to give you a rundown of some of the stuff we've been covering on ERLC.com this week. The first article that we're starting off with is Darby Strickland. You might recognize her name if you have paid attention to our Caring Well Challenge and any of our curriculum. She has taken a part in this, helped edit, provided much-needed and valuable resources to help us keep our churches safe from abuse and safe for survivors. And she's provided us with a resource titled Four Reasons Why Women Stay in Abusive Relationships. And she wrote this because there was something that circulated um, really a few months back talking about this type of situation. And she opens the article and states, when we encounter abuse and grapple with the evil it perpetrates, many people often wonder, why doesn't she just leave? Sometimes that question comes with judgment. It's her fault. The question is better framed as, why is she choosing to stay? So Darby helps us to realize that there are legitimate reasons why women in abusive relationships stay and stick around. It's not as clear-cut as we might think that it is. So, for instance, she says, victims can struggle to see the severity of the abuse or danger. They lack family, community, and church support. Leaving is the most dangerous time for a woman, and leaving is extremely difficult and costly. So we should look at these things uh, and realize that instead of uh, trite statements or 
uh, providing our judgment, we need to come alongside these women and walk with them patiently. Darby gives us, uh, under each point, lots of practical advice. And she closes out her article and says, I know how hard it is when walking with a victim to fear for her. Pray and patiently persist with the victim until God grants her clarity. Seek to extend her the same patience that God has extended to you, but also entrust her to God. He is always on the move, rescuing his people from oppression. And amen, and may he make us as the church a part of that for women who are in abusive situations. The next article I want to highlight is by Katherine Parks, and she's been making an appearance lately in a lot of our articles because she just provides us with such excellent content when it comes to life issues. And her article this week is titled, What are the Ethical Concerns with Non-Invasive Prenatal Testing? And you may think, uh, I've not heard of that. What is that? But you probably have heard about it, whether you have had a child or you just know people who have had a child. It's just that test that people are offered around 12 weeks, and it's a blood test, and they screen for chromosomal abnormalities. Primarily, it looks for Down syndrome, trisomy 18, uh, trisomy 13, and extra or missing copies of the X and Y chromosomes. You can also uh, find out early the sex of the baby. And so many people will do this testing. I personally opted not to do the testing, uh, but there are some ethical concerns with this because some ethicists are concerned that the growing prevalence of this testing and this type of testing will lead to an increase in abortions following a screening that reveals an increased risk for Down syndrome or other chromosomal abnormalities. And these tests um, aren't always accurate. There can be false positives, false negatives. Uh, there's also the concern that uh, this type of testing would lead to more technology that would provide screening that would cause people to basically screen in other ways the types of children that they're going to have. So we should be prepared as Christians um, to know about this type of testing that's taking place, to know about the threats to unborn children's lives, and also to uphold the sanctity of every preborn life and born baby, whether they have uh, a type of chromosomal abnormality or not, every single one is a gift from God and is meant to glorify Him. And then finally, another guy that's been making uh, an appearance lately is Jordan Wooten, one of our former interns who, as I've said before, is one of our channel editors as well. And he has been participating in this interview series that I've been highlighting. And this interview is titled, Why the Fear of the Lord is Good News. And he talks with author and scholar Michael Reeves, who wrote a book about the Trinity that many people have recommended. And this book is titled, Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. And I have to tell you, as I was editing this article and reading through it, I was so deeply encouraged by it. It truly made me want to buy the book and wanted me to grow in my fear of the Lord. Because as Dr. Reeves points out, as you grow in the fear of the Lord, you grow in the joy of the Lord. And he says this about uh, the fear of the Lord and how it connects to our culture. The real reason for our anxiety as a culture is our loss of the fear of God. Having lost God as the proper object of healthy fear, our culture is necessarily becoming ever more neurotic, ever more anxious about anything and everything. Without a kind and fatherly God's providential care, we are left utterly uncertain about the shifting sands of both morality and reality. In ousting God from our culture, we feel helplessly fragile. No longer anchored, society fills with free-floating anxieties. And that can even be said 
uh, not just about our society at large, but about the church. When we lose sight of the fear of the Lord and a we lose uh, a proper understanding of the fear of the Lord. So I recommend that you would read through this article prayerfully, and then that you would go and buy this book and uh, read through it slowly and allow the Lord to transform your heart, to fear Him in order that you would have uh, great and lasting joy in Him. I'm thankful that uh, Catherine uh, put that down about prenatal testing. Uh, Meredith and I were in, uh, we made the same decision that you and Justin did. Uh, and I'm so thankful that uh, her doctor at the time when when he offered that, he's like, I'm, I'm just offering this is because this is something that uh, our clinic does. But um, I know the two of y'all well enough to know that you're just going to totally bypass it because uh, what are you going to do with that information? You're still going to love the baby that the Lord has given y'all. And uh, and so that was our experience with um, all of our children. And um, But, uh, you know, for, for th- there are many good Christians who uh, don't make that same determination. Uh, and I think this is a helpful guide for those couples who are going through that season. And then I had also the same reaction uh, to Jordan's uh, piece immediately when I bought the book because I was so encouraged by it and thought, man, this is something I want to read more of. And it almost kind of sparked the same reaction I had when I first heard about Gentle and Lowly. Uh, so uh, hopefully I will have the same reaction after I read the book too. Man, Brent, well, those are those are good reactions. And honestly, I was really glad that Catherine wrote this piece for us. It is a thing that parents face all the time. I mean, as they are, um, you know, when they find out about a pregnancy, they uh, are presented with these options for some of this kind of testing, and they need to be prepared to answer these questions or think through uh, what the ethical implications of such a decision might be. I mean, for us as Christians, it's exactly what you just said, Brent. The bottom line is we believe children are a gift and heritage from the Lord, and we will love whatever children God will give us. Uh, and so, so I, I think that is something for us as Christians to spend time thinking about. And then, Lindsay, uh, on Jordan's piece, I was thinking about the fact that uh, even this morning, I was meeting with our new interns uh, for this summer at the ERLC, and we were talking about wisdom and where does wisdom begin? It begins with the fear of the Lord, and that wisdom is uh, indispensable. It's something that we absolutely must have as we live as Christians and follow Jesus in this world of, of chaos and sin and, and turmoil. And so— um, these are just really, really helpful pieces. I'm really grateful that you took the time to highlight these. Yeah, I am incredibly thankful for the authors that we have uh, contributing to our site, for the types of resources we get to provide, uh, not only for you all as listeners and readers on our website, but for ourselves, just to build us up, edify us, help us to grow our roots down deep in faith, and help us to grow up in Christ. Uh, so I hope that you find that and experience that as you are reading our pieces and interacting them. I just hope that they spur you on to know and love Christ more. But for now, Josh and Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to the culture section for the week. So Brent, it's time to pick up that energy and tell us what's going on. All right. Well, we, uh, as we are recording this, we are mere days away from the beginning of the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting right here in Nashville. And breaking news, just before uh, we went on the air to record this, uh, SBC Executive Committee President Ronnie Floyd announced that there are now 16,000 messengers who have pre-registered. And uh, he dropped it in his uh, uh, weekly column that, that goes out. And uh, there there will be some walk-ups 
uh, who also come and, and register, uh, you know, at the, the beginning of the proceedings or even during it, we could potentially be looking at 20,000 messengers gathering for this annual meeting. That is an incredible number. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that that number means that we are going to get clarity about the direction ahead for the denomination, uh, confirm the things that uh, we have always confirmed, as well as to take action on, on some of the, just the serious issues that have presented themselves. Um, that's my thought, at least. What do y'all think? I'm definitely shocked that we're looking at a number that is that high. Obviously, every single time, whatever the number of pre-registered messengers are, there will be some people who walk up and register that that were not pre-registered, but there will be uh, also some people who don't show up that were. So we we are confident that we're going to be above fifteen thousand. The fact that we could be approaching twenty thousand is just uh, it's just surreal. I mean, we haven't seen uh, huge numbers like that since maybe in the nineteen eighties during the uh, years of the conservative resurgence, where you had uh, over forty thousand people in some cases attending the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. And so uh, it is going to be, well, it's a big democratic business meeting where anybody who wants to can go to the microphone and say whatever they want. So it is going to be quite something. And uh, even if you're not an SBC insider uh, or don't care that much about SBC uh, politics, it'll be interesting to watch. Small d democratic business meeting. Small d democratic. Well, I guess in one sense, it's encouraging to see the numbers, to see the number of people that I am assuming are aware of some of the controversies that are happening online uh, when it comes to the SBC, uh, clarifying issues, issues that need to be addressed and are of the highest importance. So that part is uh, really encouraging. Um the part that is less encouraging is how busy Nashville is going to be with all of these extra people here, which, of course, is not really true. But, I mean, it's true that it's going to be busy. It's not true that it's discouraging. It's it's the summer in Nashville. It's going to be busy. I know. It yeah. makes me not want to come downtown. But I always get this sense of kind of self-righteousness when people come in because I'm like, oh, I live here in Nashville. You're just a tourist. But I'm not from here originally. Yeah. I started off as a— right. I mean, transplant. Basically, the next week it's going to be uh, bachelorette parties and Baptists on Broadway. <laughs> That's right. Hopefully, none of the Baptists are on the pedal taverns that the bachelorette parties are generally yeah. on, wooting and hollering. Wooting, wooting. <laughs> yes. I, okay. Okay. I think they call it hooping and hollering. Uh, Hooping and hollering. That's, yeah, yeah. that's right. And um, in any case, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I've gotten into the habit on like Thursdays and Fridays when I leave the office, like I don't even look up because on, not just like in the pedal tavern thing, that's normally like pretty benign, except for, you know, maybe some fun loving drunk people. Uh, the, uh, the tractor rides or whatever those things are, where they have, you know, bachelorette, you know, parties and, and all kinds of things going on. I just don't even look up. I don't even look up when I'm in my car. I just keep my eyes focused down on the road until I'm out of downtown. And then, you know, I can go about my day because it is, well, well, it's raucous. I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a thing. Uh, but Brent, you, you mentioned the number of people at the annual meeting. We talked uh, several times on the podcast recently about some of the big decisions that Southern Baptists are going to have to make. I mean, this is a pivotal moment. Uh, we were discussing this uh, with some friends the other day and just asking the question, is this the most important Southern Baptist convention in our lifetime? Because unlike like national political elections, the answer to that question is almost always no. People normally don't say, this is the most important Southern Baptist convention of our time, but this is a really important annual meeting. We are truly at an inflection point. We will be uh, making big decisions about the future of our denomination. 
in terms of its leadership, we will be determining whether or not we are going to deal, uh, how we're going to continue to deal with things like sexual abuse, how we're going to deal with things uh, like pursuing racial unity, uh, the role of women, uh, how we're going to deal with corruption uh, when it has come into our, some of our institutions. I mean, there are all kinds of questions uh, that are going to be debated. And, you know, we are, we're really prayerful and hopeful uh, that Southern Baptists are going to make great decisions on which way we need to go in, in some of these really key uh, and highly important matters. Not just great, but godly decisions. That's good, Lindsay. <laughs> the Christ-like thing to do, which seems so obvious in many of the circumstances. So staying in SBC life, uh, this next story comes to us from Baptist Press as well. So pastor and best-selling author Rick Warren announced last Sunday that he is stepping down from leading Saddleback Church, the Southern California megachurch that he founded in 1980. Warren recounted his pledge from when the church was founded that he would give the next 40 years to leading the Saddleback family. Early in 2020, the church celebrated its 40th birthday. This is not the end of my ministry, Warren told the congregation. It's not even the beginning of the end. We're going to take one step at a time in the timing of God. God has already blessed me more than I could ever possibly imagine. I don't deserve any of it. And so this next transition in my life is something I am anticipating with zero regrets, zero fears, and zero worries. Warren also stated the church does not have a successor in mind already and that they would look both inside and outside the church for, quote, a leader who is already doing some purpose-driven ministry. So... Rick Warren is saying that he is beginning to transition out from Saddleback Church. That is a that's a monumental uh, kind of moment uh, in SBC life. And I'm not sure I would want to be the pastor that takes on that task. That that would be very difficult. It's kind of like the the pastor who came up after John Piper. You know, just a it's just a it, big shoes to fill. Um, you know agree or disagree with some of the decisions uh, Rick Warren has made, some of his uh, theology. It's really incredible that he spent 40 years at that church because that's so uncommon. Pastors don't generally stay at the same church for that long. And the Lord has used him and his wife in some really incredible ways. I mean, think of how many people you know that have read Purpose Driven Life, you know, and, and have actually— been um, compelled to seek out the Lord because of it. And think of all the ministry that they've done, his wife, especially with AIDS victims, and now uh, with mental health issues. And uh, it's just really incredible legacy that they are leaving behind as far as Saddleback goes. And of course, I know they will continue to do ministry because it just seems to be what they eat, sleep, and breathe. It's an overflow of their own walk with the Lord. But it's definitely to be celebrated. That's that's absolutely right, Lindsay. I mean, Rick Warren is like a huge, huge personal hero to me. He's somebody who has, uh, look, he had every opportunity to cash in on the tremendous success of The Purpose Driven Life or of his pastorate at Saddleback or of his uh, fame and success basically becoming America's pastor. He could have sold out. He could have like been in it for himself. He could have capitulated uh, on issues where the culture was expecting him to, including and especially uh, the absolute heat he took uh, for standing strong on a 
biblical view of marriage and sexuality. And so uh, Rick Warren is somebody who is finishing well. And at the same time, he has established Saddleback as, as one of those churches that is going to continue to be kind of a, a legacy church in evangelicalism. So when I think about that, you mentioned John Piper. I actually think about Bellevue Baptist in um, in Memphis, Tennessee, where uh, right now, you know, Steve Gaines, who's a former uh, SBC president, is the pastor. But before him, it was Adrian Rogers who kicked off the conservative resurgence. Before him, it was R.G. Lee. I mean, th- these are uh, – th- there are churches that can be established that can – affect generations and in communities for years and years. And so this is just uh, this is just one of those things that I'm so grateful uh, for Pastor Rick, and I am praying the very best for Saddleback because, man, what an important uh, church and institution there in California. And so, you know, God, God bless them as they're going through this process. Yeah, and I loved what you said about Pastor uh, Warren finishing well because— Unfortunately, we have we have seen all too many examples of uh, folks in Christian life uh, who have not finished their ministries all that well. All right, this next story that we're going to takes us to Scotland. I, I tried to do a Scottish accent. I couldn't really do it. I really wish <laughs> I had one for you. I know. That wasn't even close to any type it, of an accent. It really, really wasn't, was it? <laughs> So anyways, this comes from the Herald in Scotland, and it's reporting on the President of the United States' first overseas trip. Joe Biden is eager to use his first overseas visit as president to reassert the United States on the world stage, steadying European allies deeply shaken by his predecessor and pushing democracy as the only bulwark to rising forces of authoritarianism. Mr. Biden has set the stakes for his eight-day trip in sweeping terms, believing the West must publicly demonstrate it can compete economically with China as the world emerges from the coronavirus pandemic. Before boarding Air Force One for Wednesday's flight, Mr. Biden told reporters the trip is about making clear to the leaders of China and Russia that the United States and Europe are tight. Uh, Okay, so Brent, why is his first overseas trip so important? This is significant because uh, the first place he is going is actually to the United Kingdom. And uh, there, early in his presidency, there, uh, there seemed to be some analysts who thought that there was some distance between the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, so it is significant that uh, the very first place that he lands will be in the United Kingdom. He will take part in a G7 meeting. Uh, the trip will involve some other nations, and he actually will end up in a personal face-to-face meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And uh, so a lot of folks are watching this uh, this first overseas trip for President Biden and uh, the effect it will have on international relations. All right, so staying in the UK, the BBC News has our next report. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle announced the birth of their baby girl, and their baby girl's name is Lilibet Lily Diana Montbatten-Windsor, and she was born on Friday morning in a hospital in Santa Barbara, California. Both mother and child are healthy and well, the couple said in a statement. Buckingham Palace also said the Queen, the Prince of Wales, and the Duchess of Cornwall, and the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge have been informed and are delighted with the news. Prince Harry and Meghan said they named their second child Lilibet after the royal family's nickname for the Queen, the baby's great-grandmother. So can I just say that until you got to uh, Mount Batten, that could have easily been a Leatherwood name that that you and Meredith would have, uh, you know, bestowed upon one of your own children. Just see, it sounded just right to me. Well, there you go. 
I mean, because he's basically royalty. I mean, our son does have four names in the English tradition. So take that article from the BBC and come back over here to our side of the pond. NBC News is asking the question whether the name is actually slightly controversial. In this NBC News opinion piece, uh, it says giving their daughter the monarch's private name seems like it could be a cynical attempt at reconciliation without actually doing any work. And so this 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 piece is very interesting in that it's trying to get into some of the royal drama, which Josh, I know that you really love. Uh, but it, it writes in this piece, the author writes, Lilibet harks back to Queen Elizabeth's childhood when she couldn't pronounce her own name. Her father, King George VI, reportedly said of his two daughters, Lilibet is my pride, Margaret is my joy. However, the only person in recent times who have used the queen's nickname was the late Prince Philip. At his funeral in April, the queen reportedly left a handwritten note on his coffin and signed it, Lilibet. So uh, I think it's beautiful that they named their daughter after the queen, but uh, apparently this author uh, over at NBC News thinks that perhaps there's more to it. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate that we're in a day and age where somebody is always turning over a rock, hoping to find something underneath it. And maybe there is more to the name thing, but I personally not knowing anything apart from what I know from the crown, so that practically makes me an expert. I think it is a sweet name. I love it. It's a nod to the queen. Diana, that name um, is coming at an appropriate time because this year is a year of uh, what would have been celebrations for Princess Diana because it would have been her 60th birthday and um, I think the 40th wedding anniversary. So the the dress is on display, that pretty fancy dress with a long train. Uh, so anyway, it's a sweet little chapter, I think. Um, and I think it's the birth of a baby girl that we should celebrate and just leave the poor child alone to enjoy her name. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it just— this particular piece, it just, we're, we are living in such an age of manufactured grievance. Mm. Mm. And, and this is grievance manufactured on behalf of a baby. This person doesn't know. And, and yeah. family, I mean, good grief. Did you come just, up with, with that term on your own? Manufactured, manufactured grievance. grievance? Uh-huh. Well, there are two words. I just happened to combine them. I don't, I don't know if it's like a, I don't know. Well, I, you officially I call think it it's a, a good, a good term. Manufactured, manufactured grievance. grievance. Yeah. TM. You trademark it yeah, and do, write a book about it. Actually, the one I really prefer, especially for the the folks on Twitter, outrage artists. Nice. That's what they are. Nice. Nothing but outrage artists. And that's probably what this person is doing here. And it's just like, why? What? Just be happy. There's a baby. And they, they by all accounts, seem to be honoring their grandmother. It's great. Let's celebrate that. Let's not, not tear it down. But that's what everybody wants to do these days. All right. So uh, moving on back here in America, cicadas are wreaking havoc, y'all. So apparently, uh, all the reporters in Washington, D.C. just can't consume them at a fast enough... <laughs> I thought that was a joke. I thought it was What'd a good What did you joke. say? I said, Sorry. <laughs> I said, cicadas are wreaking havoc. I said, apparently, all the journalists in Washington, D.C. can't consume them fast enough. Oh, gross. No, there's all these reporters out there that are eating cicadas. Seriously? Oh, my gosh, yes. That's gross. You haven't seen all these reporters? I haven't seen reporters eating cicadas. Okay, well, anyways, apparently we actually all do need to consume them because they are causing legitimate issues. Uh, the Today Show has a story about a cicada in Cincinnati 
that has definitely made its presence felt. The insect caused a car accident there Monday after it flew through a window and hit the driver in the face. (laughs) (laughs) We don't mean to laugh. No, This person was not looking forward to to this happening uh, on Monday. But it caused the motors to veer off and hit a utility pole. Uh, According to the Associated Press, the driver did not suffer any serious injuries, although the vehicle did see significant damage. The red-eye insects typically live underground but come out every 17 years to mate. People know them for their loud noises that they make, and this year's cicadas are known as Brood X, which includes three different types of the bugs. While they are mostly harmless, they have caused some trouble. And then, uh, so we learned uh, this morning that a cicada swarm broke the White House press plane delaying their trip by more than six hours. So this comes to us from the USA Today. A swarm of cicadas infested the exterior hull of the White House press plane Tuesday night, delaying the aircraft's flight by more than six and a half hours. The chartered plane, originally scheduled to leave at 9 p.m., was ultimately replaced with a new aircraft that had to be called in to Dulles International Airport. How incredible is this? They're causing accidents. They're they're grounding planes. It's like the locusts, the plague of the locusts. Although what's more what's more interesting to me from last week I saw a story and I meant to mention it is that if you are consuming cicadas, they've told you not to consume them if you are allergic to shellfish because they're related. So if you have if you can't eat shrimp, if you have an allergy, don't go out and find you a cicada and a fry it up and eat it for dinner. I got to tell you, I'm looking down on all those people that are eating cicadas right now for for whatever reason, uh, for the experience, for the shock value, whatever it is. Uh, Also, I feel like I need to like roll out my card table and get a little sign and say, uh, these are the plagues of Egypt, changed my mind. You know, we we lived through like 2020 in a a year of pandemic and, and quarantine and isolation and whatever. And so... Then we had this, you know, gas shortage that happened because of hackers. And now we have swarms of cicadas uh, that are, you know, eerily similar to locusts. And I'm just just not really looking forward to what the next thing might be. Hopefully not blood in the Harpeth or something. Right. That would not be okay. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. The, the Harpeth is a river here in Middle Tennessee, folks should know. Okay, well, uh, it's a pretty light week thus far. So, Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. So I'm going to go ahead and go first this week. So because we are recording a day early, it just so happens that it is my daughter Ellie's fourth birthday. And man, I mean, Ellie is our adopted daughter. She has been with us. Literally, we have been with her since she was born. We were in the room when she was born. And gosh, she is God's gift to our family. And we are just unbelievably grateful. Also, it was a very long process to make the adoption official. It took over two years. And so we are crossing that point where it has been more time, not under the kind of cloud of uncertainty surrounding the adoption. Uh, we And we are grateful, grateful to God to be on this side of it. And so we just are looking forward to celebrating her uh, tonight as a family. And it was just so special to get to hug and kiss her this morning and to uh, just to thank God for his immense, immense blessing in our lives and to our family. And so look, point of personal privilege, I'll just make my lunch here about saying happy birthday, Ellie. But We are so, so grateful for her. Happy birthday, Ellie. She is precious, and she is a firecracker, and she is tall. She is a tall firecracker. (laughs) She is tall. Um, And 
Grant is five months old today, so it's not technically his birthday, but still, the ninth is a good day. I would agree. My favorite Ellie memory happened um, within the last week. What would that be? I, I walked into the office, and she just randomly ran up, ran up and hugged my leg. Oh, sweet. Like, well, thank you, Ellie. Sweet. She probably thought you were me. Maybe. Yeah, yeah Maybe. that's true. Maybe. Doppelganger from back to last week. <laughs> if only your first name was Tom. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> oh. So what do you have, Brent? So uh, I've got something that uh, I thought just marks the the – Hopefully, the the season uh, that we are in of of reopening, uh, as uh, as longtime listeners know, we we love us some Axios around here. The the new site Axios, and this week they 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 have over the last year been doing a weekly map where they chart uh, new coronavirus cases around the country. And this week they decided they would stop producing that weekly map. And this is what they say. Uh, Axios has tracked the change more often than not the increase in new COVID-19 infections for the past 56 weeks. Those case counts are now so low, the virus so well contained that this will be our final weekly map. The U.S. averaged roughly 16,000 new cases per day over the past week. That is a 30% improvement over the week before. New cases declined in 43 states and held steady in the other seven. So, when you they below their last uh, map, they give just kind of a a review of the last fifty six weeks. And I mean, it is incredible the highs that we were at um, back in November through January. Um, and to see that and see where we are now, I mean, we have truly made progress and and by all accounts, that is due to the the vaccines being widely available. And uh, a lot of people, a large part of the population, taking advantage of those. And um, I am just really thankful uh, that that we are here. And uh, I am praying that that uh, there there's not some reason that uh, we would uh, ever take a step back. Uh, because I don't know about y'all, but I, I don't want to live through anything like 2020 again. Cosign. Retweet. Yes, me either, except for the fact that I loved having my husband home. So if I could get that part and and spend lots of family time together, um, which I know is not true for everyone, but uh, then without the virus, then I would I would appreciate that. So I'm going to pick up on both themes, coronavirus and then children. So the first is I just listened to the latest Dispatch podcast episode about the origins of the coronavirus, and it was fascinating. The link is in the show notes, of course, and I would highly recommend that you listen to it. Josh Rogan of the Washington Post, they interview him because he has just written a book about it called Chaos Under Heaven. And apparently he's married to his wife is the daughter of somebody in Bruce Springsteen's band or something. I've got to go look this up, but as I was finishing up listening to it, that's what they that's what they were talking about. She's a singer. She plays the accordion in his band sometimes. I don't know. Bruce Springsteen has someone plays the accordion. I think so. Okay. I think so. Go look it up. So anyway. That's news you can use. That is news you can use. Uh, so the other thing I was going to talk about picking up on the kids theme that Josh was talking about is this video that I found and I posted in our work Slack and nobody posted reactions to it, which I was offended by. But it is the sweetest thing. This little boy hears his mom's voice for the first time. I think he's four years old. If you need a good 
tear-up session or cry session, uh, then I would highly recommend that you look at this. It is so precious. That would be manufactured grievance. It's not grievance. It's manufactured tears, but they're not manufactured. They're... No, not the video. The video is oh. entire. I mean, I that's like, sweet. Oh my gosh. No, I'm grievance. talking about your reaction because you're, you're like, oh, nobody, nobody came around and affirmed me posting this thing. That's that's manufactured grievance. I don't think it's manufactured. It's real grievance. It's <laughs> like when I throw a party and nobody comes. <laughs> I threw a Slack party and nobody came. <laughs> so, and it's just going to take a long time before I build the courage up to throw a Slack party again. <laughs> So, which is weird because according to the love languages, words of affirmation is not not one of my uh, love languages, but apparently gifts of affirmation are. Emojis of affirmation. No, isn't it isn't 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 gifts one of the love languages? I th- I think receiving gifts is one of the love languages. <laughs> <laughs> are you making a joke? No, I, I mean I, it's been it's been like 10 years since no, I read the book. But no, it, gifts, G I F S. <laughs> I was saying apparently gifts are my love. (laughs) Oh, that was not manufactured humor. (laughs) Well, guys, you're just uh, talking to our audience for a second. They're just along for the ride, just like me. And I'm glad you guys had that moment. And um, Lindsay, I will. um, If you you can like tag me in your post from now on when you are throwing a a Slack party, I will make sure to chime in and and send you a nice gif or gift or whatever you need. I don't want it manufactured. I want it to be real. So that's going to do it for the show today. As always, we just want to say thanks so much for listening. We enjoy spending our weeks uh, with you running down the news and what's going on in our work here at the URLC. Uh, We are really uh, looking forward to being with many of you at the SBC annual meeting next week. If you do see one of us, we would uh, love it if you would stop us and say hi. Uh, We'd love to talk to people uh, who listen to the show. If you're not going to be at the SBC and you want to help us out, if you would, uh, please consider going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review or sharing this episode on social media. It just helps more people discover the show. But uh, for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back next week post-SBC with more content. Mm